0: Well, I would like to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to 2 Samuel 22. We will be considering all 51 verses together this morning, but fear not, we will do it in a timely manner. If you're using the the blue pew Bibles, you can find... Second Samuel 22 on page 274. I have entitled the sermon this morning, "David, delivered." And the key words for our worshipers in training are deliverance, refuge and enemies." Second Samuel 22, we'll be looking at all 51 verses. And uh, we're doing so as we continue working through uh, a series. As looking at the, uh, not all, but many of the songs of the Bible. Christians, we have always been singing people. We spent a good portion of our time already here this morning singing. And so, if we want to know what our songs should sound like, what they should be like, what words should fill them, what better place to look than the inspired songs of the Bible? And as we've been working through this series, we've seen great and important truths about ourselves, about God, and about the world that He has made. We've looked at Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32, Judges 5, and last week in 1 Samuel. We've seen things like God is the supreme Lord of all the universe, there is none like Him. He alone is able to punish those who oppose him, and he works in ways that confound the wisdom of man. Last week, in particular, we saw the importance of loving and embracing God's character, his providence, and the salvation that comes only by his hand. The songs that we sing matter, in other words, singing catchy, trite tunes are simply not going to cut it when things get very difficult in our lives. Last week, we saw Hannah's immovable confidence in God despite her dark and trying circumstances. This morning, we will see another one of God's dear saints and his trust in the Lord. In 2 Samuel 22, David offers up a song of praise to God as he reflects on the ways that the Lord had delivered him from the hand of his enemies, and from the hand of Saul in particular. You may remember that Saul was the first king of Israel. In 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel wanted a king so that they could be like the surrounding nations. They rejected God as their king. They wanted someone else. Well, God grants them their wish, but Samuel warns them that it would not be to their benefit. And in fact, it would come at a great cost. Saul's reign as king, to briefly summarize the long story, got quite bad. He disregarded very explicit commands from God, and Samuel is forced to strip Saul of his kingdom and give it to another. Uh, The actual exchange of power doesn't occur immediately. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul is told that because of his irreverence concerning the word of God, the, the Saul line of kings would end with him. There would be no little Saul to sit on the throne. In fact, it would be the shepherd boy, David. He is anointed king. Well, As you can imagine, a man unfit to be king, like Saul, he doesn't take this particularly well. He spends the rest of his life plotting ways to kill David, and on many occasions actually attempting to carry out those schemes. Eventually though, Saul dies and David becomes king. And while David's reign itself is very sadly not free of scandal, The most notable incident being his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah. Nevertheless, the overall trajectory of his reign as king is positive. It is good. He was a man after God's own heart. He followed the Lord and repented when he went astray. And he sought to rule well over Israel. And... So when we come to 2 Samuel 22, we get this song of reflection before us. David is near the end of his life, and he's thought about how God had led him throughout his life and delivered him from a variety of enemies. As I said a moment ago, we learn in verse 1, particularly from the hand of Saul. And so in this reflection, he burst into this whopping 51 Verse song of praise to God. Uh, now, as we read through it in a moment, um, you'll perhaps notice that the song contained here in Second Samuel twenty-two is nearly identical to the Psalm, or to Psalm eighteen. Uh, it's likely that this song, the Psalm in Psalm 18 uh, was a song that David frequently used in various forms throughout his life. And it's recorded for us here, both in the historical narrative of 2 Samuel 22, but it also lands a spot in the Psalms themselves. Uh, And so we're going to look at this one before us, uh, and we're going to do so under four major headings. In the first 20 verses, we will see David's rescue detailed. Second, in verses 21 to 31, we will see David's righteousness defended. Third, in verses 32 to 46, we will see David's responsibility described. And lastly, through the end of the chapter, we will see David's rock declared. We see his rescue detailed, his righteousness defended, his responsibility described, and his rock declared. How's that for alliteration? So first, David's rescue. Let me read the first 20 verses. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said... The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies." For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick, dark, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered His voice. And He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. So David offers this song of praise to God because God had rescued him from the hand of his enemies. He burst into praise at the thought. He heaps praise upon the Lord. Look at the the vivid detail, though, and how he describes his distress. Why so much praise? Why so much thanksgiving? Well, because he was in dire straits. The waves of death encompassed me, and the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Now, I've never really had the experience that I thought I was about to drown, but if you have, from what I hear, it is pretty terrifying. And so this is the imagery that David gives us. I'm drowning here because of the oppression of my enemy. And it, it is an apt description of David's life in many, in many ways. He certainly had good times, but he had some very difficult times, particularly as we've set the hand of Saul. In fact, in 1 Samuel 20, verse 3, David tells his friend Jonathan, Saul's son, he, he says something to him that really could stand as a perfect summary of the poetic agonizing that he does here in our passage. He tells Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. David's distress is really quite significant. We, we all have trials, struggles. We've all had difficult things happen to us. And David's, David's sufferings, in many ways, they're just next-level stuff. Death haunted him for the entirety, pretty much, of his predecessor's reign. From 1 Samuel 17 to 1 Samuel 31, Saul had a singular mission. Kill the shepherd boy. Imagine yourself being on the most powerful person in the nation's hit list. Now you're not just on his hit list, you are number one on his hit list. Wanted, number one, enemy of the state, fill in your name. How does that, how would that feel? Well, that was, that was David's life. Saul relentlessly pursued David. He deceived him, tricked him, lied to him, and many times tried to kill him. One of the most interesting scenarios is when at dinner, he just randomly ups and throws a spear at David. And yet David survives. How? Well, he says it's because God rescued him. In verse 7, he called upon God in his distress, and God heard. I love the way that one commentator describes what happens next. So, David calls upon God asking for help, and what happens? The world came unglued, David says. We see this in verses 8-16. to The earth reeled and rocked. The heavens bowed. God brought with Him fire and vengeance. He thundered from heaven, laying bare the foundations of the world, rebuking the sea. And for what? All for David. Believer, do you see what God will do to rescue His beloved? Are you in distress? Are you suffering? Look what God did for David. He took him from the many waters that surrounded him, he rescued him, and he brought him into a broad place. Why? He said in verse 20 because he delighted in me. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds really great for David. But what about me? Does God delight in me? I want to suggest something to you this morning if you are asking that question if you have trusted in Jesus Christ if you have looked to the Son of God for salvation from sin, death, and hell then God delights in you as much as He delights in Jesus Christ you have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son you are His, He is yours Does God delight in His Son? Without a doubt. Have you been united to the Son by faith? If yes, then God delights in you. And so you may with full confidence know that God will rescue you from the hand of your enemy. This, of course, does not mean that we will not suffer. It also doesn't mean that we won't ever have to die, but it does mean that we don't have to suffer the second death. The torrents of destruction here are but a foretaste of what? The torrents of hell. You see, David's rescue, a real and historical event, is a picture of the greater rescue that God worked in His Son, that all who come to faith in Jesus Christ shall be saved. But perhaps we've jumped the gun a bit here. We've moved straight from David's rescue to our rescue. But the problem is that this psalm, this song, this prayer isn't principally about David. Nor is it about us. It's about Christ and for Christ. And I'll make that point as we move into our second major heading and observation this morning, David's righteousness defended. And we'll look at verses 21 to 31. The Lord dealt with me, David says, according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. "...for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness, to my cleanness in His sight." With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. So a casual reading of these verses, particularly verses 21 to 25, may may be a bit distressing to those who love and cherish the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is the teaching that we are justified before God on the basis of of the righteousness of Christ granted to us through the instrument of faith and nothing else. Faith alone unites me to Christ and so obtains His righteousness as my own and that righteousness alone serves as the ground of my acceptance with God. That righteousness is how we can say with David in verse 20, God delighted in me. But David's words here might be confusing, if that's what we understand the Scriptures to teach. Why did God delight delight in David? Well, if we read these verses as perhaps an answer to that, it might sound like David is saying it was because he was perfect, sinless, a good guy, and, well, God just likes me. So is David espousing a form of works, works righteousness in these verses? Is he denying, perhaps, total depravity? Is he, is he really claiming to be sinless? Well, these are important questions, and they need to be addressed. They're not just important, though. They're, they're tough questions. And here's what I find to be the most compelling explanation for what David says here in these verses. These words function on two different levels. One level is about David. One is about Christ. And I would argue, fundamentally, they are about Christ. But let's start with David. As David reflected on his experience, especially at the hands of Saul, He could legitimately make the claim that his sufferings had little to do with his sins. In other words, God wasn't punishing David at the hand of Saul as if David had committed some heinous, grievous sins. David was, after all, a man after God's own heart. And if you read the account in 1 Samuel, David, by and large in the experience, is faithful to God even faithful to Saul who's trying to take his life. Like Job, David's sufferings in this case really do not at all seem to be connected with his personal sins. So he can say in integrity that God was pleased to deliver David from the hand of Saul because David acted righteously in his sufferings. He's not claiming complete perfection here. What he's claiming is an overall fidelity, faithfulness to the Lord through his trials. He didn't, as Job was instructed to do, curse God that he might die. So I think David, at one level, is speaking of his own experience here of righteous living before the face of God, even in the distress of uh, the distress. That he experienced at the hand of Saul. Not sinless living. But blameless. But the language really is just too strong. It's too emphatic. We really have to consider whether David is is the primary voice behind these words. Can the man of 2 Samuel 11 and 12... Really say, I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not departed from my God. From his statutes I did not turn aside. I have kept myself free from guilt. Just ten chapters ago in 2 Samuel, David was metaphorically washing the blood of Uriah off his hands while Bathsheba still slept in his bed. I think we must see through these verses that though they are true of David in some ways, particularly concerning his conduct toward Saul, they ultimately run on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is not David, after all, who was perfectly righteous before God. It was Jesus. It was not David who kept God's rules before him at all times. It was Jesus. Jesus was the one who lived the perfect, sinless life with no qualification. And yet, David, somehow in the mercy of God here, can claim this righteousness as his own. How? Well, was Christ was Christ rewarded for his righteousness? Did God deal with the God-man according to the cleanness of his hands? No. Christ was smitten by God and afflicted. He was, opposed, he was oppressed and afflicted and laid low. And if we back up to verses 1 to 20, and we think about everything that has been said so far, and we ask about this distress and this rescue that David experienced, well, how was that about Christ? Thinking about verse 7 in particular. If this is about Christ, how differently do we read it? In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To God I called. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From His temple He heard my voice, and my prayer came to His ears. But yeah, like we saw last week in Hannah's prayer, God... He didn't answer Jesus' cry of distress. He didn't rend the heavens and come down. Jesus Himself was torn in two. You see, David can sing this song of deliverance because Jesus was forsaken. David can say that God rescued him from the ways of death because they found another victim. David can say that he survived the torrents of destruction because they landed in full force on someone else. The cords of Sheol failed to end David's life. They failed to end David's life because they wrapped around the greater David. The righteousness defended in verses 21 to 25 belongs not really to David but to Christ. And yet because Christ Did not receive the rescue of verses 1 to 20, David, the unrighteous one, claiming the righteousness of his own, the righteousness of Christ as his own by faith, David could be saved. This song is about David, but more, it's about Christ. And he continues in 26 to 31, extolling the mercies of God, David. He says, the haughty and arrogant are brought to ruin, but God saves the lowly of heart. And again, lest we think that this is some prescription for works righteousness, you know, just just be more humble. We can look at how he ends this section in verse 31. God's way is perfect. His Word proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in Him. David experienced deliverance ultimately, Because he took refuge in God. He trusted in God. And the same may be true for us. So if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I commend Him to you now. He stands ready, willing to receive you. Will you in faith look to the only Savior of men. Well, let's turn then to verses 32 46. We see David's responsibility described. He says, For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge. He has made my way blameless, He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You you gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet, for you have equipped me with strength for, strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, and He did not answer them. I beat them, fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets." We'll actually stop there. So in these verses here, 32 to 43, David turns from the the general poetic description in the first 20 verses of how God rescued him. And he describes his deliverance in more detail. In short, he says, God delivered him by making him an unconquerable man of war. God had trained David's hands for war. He ensured that his feet would not slip. And so these, this section and the first section bring together two important truths that we find, I think, in constant tension in our hearts as we consider the Christian life. On the one hand, God will rend the heavens and rebuke the earth down to its very foundation to save us. And on the other hand, it is imperative That as we live out our lives before God, we must come out swinging. Verse 35 says, God trained David's hands for war. But then in verses 38 to 43, who was the one acting? It was was David. David pursued his enemies. David destroyed them. David consumed them. Graphically, quite graphically, David says he beat them fine as dust and crushed them and stamped them down like mire in the streets. You see, David didn't call out to God for deliverance and then just sit still. He called out and then got to work. David had a responsibility to strive against his foes. The power was all God's. David doesn't mince words about that. But David worked, or sorry, God worked through the obedience and faithfulness of David to bring about his desired ends, particularly here with regard to David's enemies. And this is what we see in the Bible over and over again. God unilaterally swoops down and saves us. It's all of grace. But then we are then we are then called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We, like David, have a responsibility in life. And so, let me encourage you this morning. Are you weighed down with sins? Are you caught in transgression and aren't experiencing any victory there? Maybe it's because you are simply waiting on God to do everything for you, rather than living faithfully in the power that He supplies. Are you caught in a battle against lust, but are unwilling to download Covenant Eyes or or some similar software on your devices, delete certain apps from your phones, or get rid of your smartphone altogether? Are you caught in a battle against drunkenness, but continue to drive by your old stomping grounds on the way home from work? Are you caught in a battle against compulsive spending, have never tried to get help to establish and maintain a budget? If you're a consistently angry person, have you ever asked what it would mean to put off anger and to put on peace? Have you asked for forgiveness from those you've hurt? Maybe you're a gossip. Have you come clean, repented, and begun to walk in the truth in love? There are a variety of vices that we could name; those are just some examples. But the reality is, is we don't stumble into holiness. It takes concerted, diligent effort. This is why Peter says in Second Peter one five that we should make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self control, self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort, he says. Christian life isn't a passive one. We've seen this in our series before. It is one of striving. And yet, like David here, we must remember God is the one who works in us both to will and to work. And so we'll finish here, verses 44-51, to with David's rock declared. He says, You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted, me from, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise You, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to Your name. Great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David and his offspring forever. On whom did David's hope lie? Where did he look for deliverance? Whose strength was it that enabled David to tread down his enemies? It was God. We've seen this all along. Verse 2, God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Verse 3, God is my rock and my shield, my stronghold, the horn, or the power of my salvation. God is worthy to be praised. Verse 4. Verses 8 to 20. God moved heaven and earth to deliver me. Verse 32. God is my refuge. Verse 40. You, O Lord, equipped me with strength. Who caused David's enemies to fall before him? Verse 40. Again, you made those who rise against me sink under me. Over and over, David gives praise to God, the Lord, for his gracious provisions. And so who really delivered David? It wasn't David. Verse 44, you delivered me from the strife with my people. You kept me as the head of nations. If we were to put this song to music, I think there would have to be a key change at verse 47. We've been cruising along with some really great, Powerful reflections on the gracious nature of God's character and his deliverance of David in verses one to forty-six, but then we hit verse forty-seven and we're hitting high sea all the way to the end. David's joy has burst into full bloom. The Lord lives, he says. And this is how the song began, and this is how it ends. My rock yes David fought but the strength and power and victory and glory were God's God was the one who brought David out from his enemies and exalted him above those men of violence he says and David offers heartfelt thanks for this I will praise you O Lord among the nations and sing praises to your name he rejoices in God's salvation and the way he shows love to God's anointed. So he's rejoicing in what God has done. And it's interesting, this, that uh, verse 51 is almost identical to what we saw last week in 1 Samuel 2 with Hannah's prayer. This recognition of God's King and God's anointed. And so on whom does all of this center? We've said it. Jesus Christ if you're on the fence about this, is this song really about Christ? I mean, it sounds good. Well, the Apostle Paul seems to think so, because in Romans 15, 8 through 13, he quotes this song in part. Verse 8, he says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm His promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, and then he quotes 2 Samuel 22.50, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. To Him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so where does our hope come from? It comes from this. This song about Christ. When David sings about praising God's name among the Gentiles or the nations, he is prophetically telling of the inclusion of the Gentiles which can only come through the mercy of God in Christ. Isn't it incredible? All those many years before Christ ever came, we have a song of David foretelling of the glorious truth that one day, in Messiah, Jew and Gentile would be brought together. That one day, people like us would have hope. The message of the Gospel is not for one ethnic group alone. It is for the nations. It is for every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and people. For all who would come to Jesus Christ are welcome. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to convert to some specific ethnic cultural standards. All you have to do is be hungry, come, and eat. Are the cords of death wrapped around you? Are you suffocating? Whatever breath you have, use it. Call out to God and He will come. And you can know for certain that He will come because He did not spare His only Son so that He could come. Jesus called out and was left to die so that when you and I call out, God can move heaven and earth to come to rescue us.